This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is another in a recent series of people that makes me want to work harder, learn more, and do more for others. His name is Savneet Singh, and he has already accomplished a remarkable amount in the worlds of business and investing. He's preferred to keep a bit of a low profile, but I'm hoping for everyone's sake to change that a little bit. So see the show notes for where you can read him and follow him. Savneet has invested in unique things like Spanish real estate, famous startups like Uber, cryptocurrencies before they were cool, and even websites. He founded and built a fintech company, and now he is both a partner at the wide-ranging investment firm CoVenture, with my previous guest Ali Hamed, and the co-founder of Terra Holdings, which is trying to become the Berkshire Hathaway of software companies. To say this conversation is wide-ranging is an understatement. What's neat is that my favorite parts aren't even on investing, but are instead on principles for living. Savneet is one of the best people I've met on this journey. I've had several other conversations with him with shockingly low overlap with the one you are about to hear, a testament to his active and curious mind. I hope you enjoy learning from him as much as I have. Okay, so Sevneet, we are going to, like my conversation with your partner Ali, range all over the place, but we're going to talk about a lot of interesting investing ideas, investing philosophy, your personal story. I thought a fun place to start would be Spanish real estate, how you started thinking about that and, and what you did in that area. Sure. I should preface that I am not a real estate expert by any means, but I'd say a year and a half ago, two years ago, I and, and a couple of friends, we bought a condo in Barcelona, and our thesis was that rates were really low still in Europe. And Barcelona was one of the few cities that was still very close to the 2009 bottom where every other city had rebounded. And it was, it was really that simple. And we traveled around on a vacation, went across Europe, and realized two things. The first was the Airbnb trend was incredibly unappreciated. And what we meant by that was the ecosystem around it had just not developed, and people were underestimating just how large it would be. And so we said, hey, let's figure out what city has mispriced Airbnb the greatest and in what city it's legal. And we ended up in Barcelona. And there was this really interesting legislation that happened where the government passed tourist license in Barcelona, where if a property had a tourist license, you could legally put it up for short-term rentals. And what we discovered was a property with a tourist license only sold for 10% more than a property without one, yet the yield was 2 to 3x the, the price. And so we said, hey, let's go. This is just a personal investment. Let's go buy a property. And overnight, we, put it, we got rid of the tenants left. We put it all on Airbnb. And the yield is amazing. 
And fast forward a year, I had left the job I was working at, and I said, you know, this is working out really well. Let's go build a business around it. And so we raised a bit of money and started and sort of became the distressed buyer of condos in Barcelona. And so I think if you talk to any of the brokers in the area, we are the fastest to move. We lock in interest rates at less than 2.5% for 20-year fixed, and we are buying at replacement cost. And it's been amazing to sort of see a cash flow profile of business from a broker and the next day be able to flip it to two and a half times that by putting on a short-term rental site. Somewhere in our correspondence, you mentioned this idea that Airbnb might be the most impactful or interesting new company of this kind of wave of, of companies over the last 10 years. Maybe expand a little bit more on that and uh, tied back to the idea that you think it was underappreciated when you first started. Yeah. And so I think we've had a lot of transformative companies come out, Uber as an example. What I found interesting about Airbnb is if you think about the power of brand, I can take Uber, I can take Lyft, I can take Juno. But most people don't know what's beyond Airbnb. And what's powerful to me about that is Airbnb is already the biggest hotel company in the world. And if you ask most people like over the age of 35 if they've ever been in an Airbnb, the answer is probably no. And so when you have this next generation that grew up on a, in a shared economy and they become the ones with wealth, they become the ones traveling for work, they become the ones traveling with their family, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of the volume of people coming onto that market. And so I originally started looking, where are the software plays here? What are the financing plays here? And ended up that there was a really great real estate play underneath it. I don't normally do this, but because there's such rich detail in the, in the backstory here, I'd love to spend a little time on your very early life, especially given your, your, your and your brother's very entrepreneurial streak, um, and talk a little bit about your very first forays into business and kind of thinking about investing. I grew up in upstate New York, and not from a business family. My mom's family was social workers and very much into social justice, and my dad was a doctor. But we had a lot of freedom as children. And so when we were young kids, we had a koi pond our dad had built when we were kids as, a, as like a father-son project. And one summer, the fish had babies. And my brother and I, I don't know how we got this idea, we took a bunch of pictures of the fish and put it up on Craigslist and started selling fish on the internet. And a year after that, we, eBay started to really grow. And we said, hey, we have all these baseball cards we bought. Maybe we can sell them online. And we sold them online. And we said, wow, that was a little bit of money. But what if we made our own packs of cards? And so we started going to sports card stores dealing with people that were far older than us, and we were both sort of below, we were probably 14 or 15 years old, and we'd buy these cards, take these packs, and sell them on eBay. And slowly but surely, the business grew and business grew, and I joke, but when my when my brother was 15 years old, he had a BMW shipped to our house <laughs> without telling our parents, and he couldn't drive yet. And so it was an amazing kind of experience to see that boom of the internet and capitalize in some small little way. Talk about the transition from that into the earliest formation of, of your big investing influences. You've had some really interesting, almost like a, like a tasting menu of different styles of investing and influences. So what was the beginning of that chronology? I was a sophomore in college and I, I, you know, I sort of discovered I liked business. I didn't know what it was beyond that. And my uh, father sent me the Roger Lowenstein book on Warren Buffett with a note saying, this guy reminds me of you, and he really, he really likes cherry coke and burgers, like you do. And so I read the book and I devoured it. And I started, like, you know, I think part of being uh, naive was I literally sent an email to Seth Klarman and Dan Loeb and every hedge fund manager that was a value that was a value investor to get their view on how to learn to be a value investor. And so I spent most of college trying to understand the principles behind value investing, and that led me to investment banking because as I talked to a number of those managers, they said, "Go spend two years on the sell side, learn how to model, learn to see the different parts of Wall Street before you make that jump." And so. I went from there into uh, investment banking and, and really early on, just a traditional two years banking. And then I worked at a big hedge fund. What do you take from those two years? It's a pretty standard path. 
Um, it's, I've, I know a lot of people have gone through it. It's an arduous two years. Oftentimes people are completely burnt out at the end of it. How did that impact you? Did you enjoy it? What do you, what do you look back on and remember from that period? I loved it. I think, uh, so everyone complains about it cause it's a lot of work and, uh, it's, it's not a lot of, I think intellectually satisfying work, but I loved it for a few reasons. I think the first was I, I had grown up in a small town and I had never really been exposed to like how the, like this part of the country lives and it blew my mind. And so that I remember I was, uh, you know, 22 years old, and I was on a flight to Japan, and I was like, this is wild. Like, I, I don't think my family, anyone in my family has ever been to Japan. And so I think that exposure was great. The second thing that was super useful was you get exposure to all parts of Wall Street. So you're on the sell side, so you're, you see the IPO process of meeting the buy side. You see the private equity side where you're selling deals to them. You see the capital market side. And so it's great exposure at a young age. And I think the last and probably maybe the most important is you're around really high horsepower people, far more than you were in college, far more than you were anywhere else. And it was awesome to be challenged by people who, it was truly, I, I say this with no arrogance or hubris, it was the first time in my life I met people who were, could think faster than I could. And that is a really humbling and fun experience. So we, we come in now to a, a tough part of the story, I think, for you and just for the whole world. Like 2008, the financial crisis, yeah. uh, to the extent you're comfortable talking about, you know, what was a, a tough sure. time personally, would love to hear kind of that next stage, yeah. what happened and how it impacted kind of how you think about life. Yeah, it was tough for a number of reasons. Obviously, it was an interesting time to learn to be an investor. Uh, you know, I think within like my first 12 months at a hedge fund, uh, Lehman collapsed, you had AIG. And at the same time, I lost my mother and I had randomly gotten very sick. And all those experiences at once kind of make you think about what you really want to do with your life. And I remember sitting with my brother, who's had obviously a lot of influence in my life, and he said to me, okay, imagine the job of your boss at your fund and imagine the job of being an entrepreneur, which I was sort of debating doing. He said, Would you, do you want your boss's life? And I was like, yes, I really want it. And he said, well, tell me why. And I was like, well, he's got this amazing house. He's got this great life. And he's like, okay, but think of like the day job, like what he does. I'm like, well, it's great. He gets to interview company management. The sell side's always trying to give him stuff. It's this really fun job. He's like, okay, now would you take that job if you were paid $35,000 a year? And I was like, nope, I, would, I do not want that at all. And so that was, it was a very amazing experience for me. I said, okay, you know what? Uh, I've been through all this trauma. I want to try to go build something because while I love value investing, I, do, I had this entrepreneurial bug to create. And so it was a tough time. It was also probably the most formative time in my life of wanting to create something. So talk about the entrepreneurial journey. Talk about GBI a little bit, what that business was, how you got the seed for the idea. Uh, I know a lot of what you learned there has then formed more roots for what's come next. So a couple of minutes on GBI would be fascinating. I and some partners who were actually far older than I were started brainstorming this idea of originally creating a platform for people to buy hard assets. And the idea was after the crisis, there'd be a movement into one, esoteric assets, but two, assets with less counterparty risk. And you know, a simple example was when you buy your house, you buy it directly. You're not buying through someone that owns shares of a trust at a place you don't know that owns your house. And so why are you doing that with your financial assets? And is there a way to create that? And we had this sort of macro thesis that precious metals would be a place to be. And so when we looked around the world, we were kind of surprised that Gold is the oldest asset investment currency in the world, yet it's not electronically traded anywhere. And it's kind of the backwater, this little backwater desk of most Wall Street firms. And so we said, let's go figure out how to tackle this market. And we built, went and built what's, I think, now one of the largest platforms in the world to buy, trade, and store precious metals. And that journey, I think, was, was scary in that I always say that it was two parts of the journey. The first journey was building the company, which was convincing dealer desk by trading desk by sales desk to come join our platform, our exchange. And the second half of the journey was literally convincing all these banks to come onto a platform that was started by a 26-year-old. And it was amazingly lucky. The timing was great. The investors were great. And it was a, just the beginning of this like fintech 
I don't know if you want to call it a revolution, but evolution. And uh, we sort of were the right time, right place, and recruited a great team. Let's talk about fintech for a couple of minutes. So you were sort of in at the ground floor in terms of watching a lot of these businesses be built because you were building a business at the same time yep. in the same space. I know you've been an investor uh, at some points, angel investor or otherwise in the space. Talk about just a general take on fintech companies, fintech investing and the trend. Um, any observations you have there? My best way of sort of talking about fintech today is like an example of uh, the conversation you have with an entrepreneur. And so someone will come in and say, hey, I have this great idea that's going to disrupt life insurance. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you're, so they sort of go through the pitch and they're like, it's a great user interface. It's a great user experience. And then the final answer is always like, and life insurance companies haven't changed in 100 years. And so this is going to be disrupted. And I, and I used to always, like, and that's always like an exciting thing to say, that something hasn't been disrupted in 100 years. But when I hear that, I'm kind of like, that just means it's a really good business. There's a reason why something hasn't been disrupted. It's not like there haven't been a, people that have been a, a smart businessmen before you. It, but if something's lasted for 100 years, that's like the definition of an amazing business. And so breaking that down, I think that's sort of been the problem with fintech, in that people have a poor user experience and assume that it's easy to disrupt. And so you've had the first wave of fintech be primarily customer acquisition, acquisition businesses get a loan online, get an get a insurance product online, but they haven't really created new products. And so I can now get a loan online, I can get buy insurance on my phone, but it's still the same loan that I would have gotten from a bank, and it's still the same, relatively close to the same insurance product I would have gotten from a traditional insurance company. And so I think we're just at the cusp of like the second wave, which will be actually new products. And that's where I think it actually gets really interesting. When can, when can you loan to markets that couldn't get capital before? When could you insure a risk that didn't exist before, that you couldn't cover before because there wasn't data to cover that? That's where I actually think you're going to have real businesses created. And that's why I honestly think the first wave of companies, while you've had some big brand names, they haven't actually had like, economic success. And so I think they've had VC, VC success, but they haven't yet got to that level where they're really sustainable business models. Do you think any of those companies, I'll, I'll pick on one like a, a Wealthfront or a Betterment, where effectively, yes, it, it is a very nice user interface and a bunch of technology on top of arguably commodity products like an efficient frontier, you know, passive market portfolio. Do you think that some of those companies might successfully transition into this second type and have some sort of first mover edge just in the fact that they've got a big team and they're well capitalized by venture capitalists and they, they know the players. So they have a, they have more of an edge and say like pricing some new insurance that we couldn't before. How do you think about sort of the fintech incumbents? It's funny saying that because yeah. they're all still private businesses, but I think it's absolutely possible. I think one of the great challenges of starting a fintech business is that it's a very long sales cycle. And so I imagine if you're sitting in the seat of you know, the founder or owner of Wealthfront, Betterment, one of these great companies, part of you is also like, gosh, it's really great that we're this size now, but it was really, really hard. And you almost start adopting the legacy mindset of that industry that you're trying to disrupt. And so I think the challenge is, are you able to continue to break the, that legacy mindset to create? And I think Listen, when you're a robo-advisor with 100 million of assets, you're not really anything yet. But when you have billions of dollars and you're registered and you have to, every marketing communication has to be approved by council and then by an outside council, you start looking more and more like the traditional incumbents. And so I think, do I, I believe the robo-advisor market will work. I feel unfortunate for the founders of those companies because I think they become missionaries. And I'm sure they'll do well, but not nearly as well as they dreamed of when they started the company, given how much capital has to go into it. But I wouldn't bet they're the ones that disrupt the product creation. Let's go back to some of these ideas of what actually might be a new product. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll take insurance as, as the example. Could you give an example of something where this is potentially something that we can now get into business with that we just couldn't before and what the barriers were prior? I'll give you an example I, I thought about, used to think about a long time ago, which was today, if you went to get life insurance and you had any form of cancer, you're not getting life insurance. If you have diabetes, your rates are incredibly high. But it's sort of like a blind sort of like pool that you're in a box that you can't get coverage for anymore. 
And I think what's sort of silly about that is there are many forms of cancer that you still live a very, in air quotes, normal life. There are many times diabetes where if you take care of it appropriately, you can actually live a traditional lifespan. And so I think an area where you'll see some of this happen are in areas where you can actually have, you have data now to reprice that risk to a way where it actually is beneficial to the consumer. So instead of saying, hey, you've got this disease, I'm sorry, you can get, you can get life insurance, but it'll cost you $200,000 a year for a million dollar policy. Now you can say, hey, we can price you at a relatively fair price, provided you act in a behavior, this type of behavior pattern, which allows us to price it that way. And so that's like an area I think you'll see some, I don't know if disruption is the right word, but product involvement. I think another Area will be obviously the property and casualty world, like broadly. So cars will be different. I think being able to insure my skis when I go skiing, as opposed to always having to pay for insurance for that. You're just starting to see some of the stuff that's going to adapt to like I think what I think will be the, the, the new world of insurance, the new world of traditional insurance products. What is your take from experience and just from thinking about it about venture capital style investing? So I know you've done some angel investing. Maybe you could tell a couple of the really interesting stories yeah. there. As I've said many times on the podcast, I always have trouble disentangling skill, luck, timing, relationships, replicability of, of different venture strategies, given that you've done a lot and existed in that world, I would love your take on that style of investing. I've existed in that world in the sense of being just like anyone else who started a a fintech company, you ended up being a bit of an angel investor. And I got, you know, I always joke, like the first deal I ever got into was Uber and it was complete luck. How early was that? Like what year was Uh, that? 2010 or 11. And we were, and and I think, you know, the, the single lesson I've learned from venture, which makes it so hard to, as an asset class is it's not systematic. When you break down why, so when I break down the successes I've had as an angel investor, there was no pattern. It was like, hey, I got to know Travis completely randomly. I got into that, you know, SoFi because my friend was there and he was like a college roommate of mine. I got into some of these these deals and there was no like pattern. Rec- I couldn't create the pattern for it. And I think that's I think that's why traditional allocators struggle with the asset class in general. I think what's worked in the past is either saying. There's a brand, whether it's a persona or a brand or a firm. And I think that works for some. I think it's, it's challenged more in a world of AngelList in the blockchain where anybody can be a VC now. This would be like a first-round capital or something. First-round like capital, Sequoia, Kleiner, or the persona around it, like a, a figure in an industry. And so if I was to bet, I bet you what happens to the next wave of venture capital will be a lot more domain-specific venture capital. So I have a customer acquisition skill set. I'm just investing in companies that are trying to pick off Procter & Gamble brands. So I want the next Dollar Shave Club. I want the next Chewy. Because that's actually value-add. I know how that skill set. I can provide that to you. Or I am just the insure tech guy because I can get make connectivity for you here and there. And so I think you're going to have a lot more specialization as opposed to I'm going to invest in venture because I'm a, a really special guy and everyone comes to me. I think that model becomes more and more challenged over time. Are you still active in that world, making angel investments, things of that nature? I'm not, and, and it's purely because I just couldn't find the pattern. And so uh, I always say I will do it in the event that I, it's one of people, someone in my network who I just think is 10 levels smarter than I am, then of course you th- always throw that check, but it's not something I actively look at. So talk about the, the transition out of GBI. Uh, we can start to bridge to one of the favorite episodes of the show, uh, just based on the feedback I've gotten, which is with your partner, Ali Hamed, sure. uh, at CoVenture. What's the next stage of the journey? So Ali and I got to know each other uh, many years ago, uh, and just as friends. He was a, a sophomore in college, and I was speaking at a class that I knew the professor, and he came to me and said, hey, I've got six startup ideas that I'm launching right now. And I came back and said, hey, just do one of them. And then as GBI was growing, I started thinking about, hey, what happens next in my life? I have this large illiquid asset that has value, but let's just say tomorrow I want to you know, go do something else. There's no income stream from that. And so I started obsessing on this idea of finding income streams. And so the Spanish real estate was a, was a derivative of that. And one of the areas that I started investing in was finding really niche 
originators. And the idea here was, similar to what we just talked about in fintech, that all the VC money had gone into companies like Lending Club and SoFi and these great businesses that were figuring out, how do I bring, make student loans easier? How do I make consumer loans easier? How do I make personal loans easier? But they weren't actually like lending in brand new markets. And what's really interesting is if you find a new segment that has not had credit before, you as the debt capital can lock in amazing terms for yourself. And traditional capital won't come in because there's not five years of history, because it's new, because if you're a hedge fund with a billion dollars, like a $5 million check is just not really worth your time. No matter how high, how high the yield is, you can't really, that analyst learning how to underwrite a produce loan is not useful elsewhere. And so uh, I had gone to Ollie and said, hey, I think this is an amazing place in the world for you, to, for you to, to, to spend time, and I'll throw some money into it. And so it was a really fun journey. And so after I left GBI, I started thinking a little bit about what I wanted to do. And as I kind of mentioned, the area of the world that I was interested in was this sort of idea of being a value investor but being an operator. And one of the journeys of, of mine was figuring out what does the next Berkshire Hathaway look like? I and some friends five or six years ago went to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, and we all left there in awe. And I think obviously we're in awe of the wealth and all that stuff, but we really expressed was like, gosh, Warren Buffett is really, really content. And he's way happier than our investors or the people we look up to or our bosses. And how do you recreate that? And so we can dig into it an hour later, but uh, it, it led to this sort of exploration of trying to, to build a holding company of, of really powerful assets. So let's hold off on Terra because that's the place where I'd like to spend you know, a big chunk of time really, really diving through the thesis. I actually want to back up. I meant to ask early on about tennis early on. Okay. Um, so maybe you could maybe you could describe your your career, however brief or, or long, in, in tennis and what you took from that. So I was uh, I loved playing sports as a kid, and uh, I discovered tennis a little bit later. I guess in ten or eleven years old, which, eleven years old, which is a little bit late for sports. And I got really good really fast. And my brother and I used to go, you know, fly around to these tournaments, these camps. And you know, it was amazing. We got to play with Andy Roddick before he was Andy Roddick. And when we were, I think, 14 or 15, my dad sat, sat me down and he said, listen, if you want to be anything in life, you really have to give it your all. So if you want to be a tennis player, you should drop out of high school and go move to a tennis academy and go do this full time. And I also said today, I think we both whisked out and said, no, dad, we want to go back to school and we, we don't want to do this. But was the thing that impacted me the most from that was the sheer fact of my dad giving me the option to do that obviously showed that he believed in me. But it also like created this mentality that you can do anything you want. And, and it was, it's so powerful now that I think about how much th- that, that impact had. I mean, my dad is one of those guys who did all sorts of experiments on us. But the tennis journey was beautiful because it taught us the ability of hard work, commitment to something. You know, you were 13, 14 years old and you're waking up at 5 in the morning going running with your dad. Then you still have to go to school. Then you have to go play tennis after. So I think that rigor of hard work and then obviously like the empowerment your dad telling you drop out of school – to go chase something was really helpful as, as we got older. Are there other things that your parents did in particular that you feel had like a very high impact on the way you think about the world or the way you act or your character? Well, I had dramatically different parents. So I think I'll first go to my dad. My, one of the great things my dad did at a really young age was he involved us in big decisions. So I used to joke, like when we would go to the airport to go fly somewhere, he would go to me or my brother and say, you pick what time we leave. And, you know, we were still too young to really figure that out. And it was in my, and my mom, my mom hated it because, you know, we'd be late, we'd be on time, but he would give that responsibility to us or his like prizes for us. We'd be driving to visit our grandparents two and a half hours away. He would make us memorize every single exit on the way there, all 40 or 50 of them, the names of the streets of every exit. And so he was always kind of challenging us to kind of like to be part of the conversation when we were far too young. And I think that always gave us a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. And we always felt very comfortable in awkward situations because of that. I think my mom, what I think actually is most influential on us is like this sense of like social responsibility and fighting for injustice. And so I think both my brother and my sister, all of us are hardworking, successful in our careers. 
and none of us are really motivated by money. I think like none of us have big Instagram or social profiles. None of us look for that notoriety, but it's very much driven by trying to create justice for other people. And so it was a really interesting dynamic of two very different parents. Can you say more about justice? I'm, this sounds like a really interesting thread. So how would you, how would you describe or, or classify that? I'm a Sikh American. And so I look very different. You can't see me, but I have a beard and a turban and they do a double take if you saw me on the street. And I think coming from a, a, such a visibly minority community, you are more aware of the trials and tribulations of people who don't who look different, who don't belong, or whatever the proper word is. And I think that experience combined with a family that was very much fighting for the rights of other people grounded you in this idea that you were really lucky. And I often say, like, I've learned, like, two real lessons in life, and one of those lessons is, like, the power of circumstance. And I feel so lucky that I was born in America because I had, you know, that was nothing to do with me, and my dad decided to fly over here and take a risk. I had zero, zero part of that, but it's been the most impactful thing in my life. And so from a young age, we would always, when I got my first paychecks, every job I had, my dad would make me give it away. When we had time in the summer, we were forced to go volunteer. When we were young, my dad would take us to third world countries and say, you know, let us be exposed to parts, people that I think most people don't get exposure to at a young age. And so we've always felt this kind of shift to like help other people. And so I think, I don't know why on a personal basis it's always mattered, but when I'm bored, I go on like GoFundMe and I find campaigns of people doing really interesting things and I fund them. And so I think it starts from being a community that was very, that was very much part of our DNA to when you get older, sort of just realizing how lucky you are. What was the most memorable trip that you took? It's funny, I, I, I culturally Indian, but you know, born and raised, I had never really gone to India until I think when I was a kid and I never really gone until I was 12 or 13 years old. And I, was, I remember I was in eighth grade and our parents took us there for a month. And, you know, when you're at that age, you can actually, like, understand what's happening. And I remember just being shocked by the poverty. I remember our mom just, like, walking us around the neighborhood. And you just saw, I mean, it was amazing. It was just so sad and amazing that people can live like this. It was just complete happenstance. When we came back home, uh, the first English assignment we had to say is why we're proud to be an American. And I was an incredibly quiet kid in eighth grade. I don't think I ever said a word. And I remember we got this assignment, and we were talking about it. And a few people just were like, I'm not proud of American. America sucks, this, that. And I stood up, and I, again, an incredibly shy, quiet kid. And I just went off for like 20 minutes of how lucky we were. And so I would say without question, that was the most impactful thing in my life. You mentioned that there are two key lessons that you've learned. You mentioned, I think I would classify it as randomness or circumstance, luck as the first. What would the second, what's the second one? Being in the arena, that Teddy Roosevelt quote of you have to take action. I think one of like the great lessons I've learned is that those that like don't raise their hand, those that don't ask the girl, those that don't actually take that plunge, it never works out. And so I think the quote, I think I'm going to butcher it, but I'd rather, you know, be the guy on the ground with blood, sweat, and tears than the shy and timid souls on the outside of the ring. And I always take that to mean, yes, you have to raise your hand, you have to jump into it, but it's actually the life experience of putting your all into something that's valuable. So you may go quit your job at Goldman Sachs and do a startup and fail, but that journey and experience of actually trying to pave your own path is so valuable from a life perspective. Your financial outcomes may never be the same as they once were, but that like journey is so, so valuable. Let's go back to the five or six years ago. You're at Berkshire with a group of friends. Uh, you had this kind of formative background reading about Buffett and Lowenstein's book. You, value investing appeals to you. So first, describe what in particular about value investing so struck a chord. And then I'd like to talk about your evolution of thinking around this idea, the people that are famous for it, the idea itself, the kinds of companies it leads you to, 
And all of that will serve as sort of foundation for talking about Terra. When I went to Berkshire in, in my study of it, I can never, I've never been able to define why it resonates. It just did. It was one of those things where I love the hunt to find the company that someone didn't know that was undervalued for whatever that reason may be. And I love the dynamic of trying to understand if something was undervalued or not. It was just natural to me. I, I find sometimes I joke that if you live in an immigrant family, you're kind of like taught to be a value investor at a very young age. And so maybe it was that. I don't know. But it just it was naturally there for me. And as I sort of studied more and more, the more I just became obsessed with it. And so I would spend hours and hours with a group of friends just dissecting John Malone, dissecting Danaher, dissecting 3G, and trying to figure out were there patterns that we could pull from these to, to educate our own lives. Maybe we were talking about this at lunch, but it'd be great to, to say it again on record, to talk about your observation of culture as a component of sort of the undercurrent that's important at some of these compounders. So everyone wants to find compounding companies and invest in them early. And it's very easy to look back and say, yeah, here are the compounding companies. Look how great John Malone is. Uh, Very difficult to have found that ahead of time. And it's a fairly small sample. But in studying those companies, what commonalities did you find? Maybe what are all the commonalities with a special focus on culture? Because I think that's one that's talked about less. I think when we looked at, you know, a dozen, dozen plus companies, it's very hard to find patterns. You know, I think some of them were in good industries. Some of them were just great allocators. Some of them were great operators. And the three things I think we saw uniformly through all of them was the first was they had all had very long-term visions. They were not focused on the next quarter, the next year, the next two years, or three years. And that actually under, underlines everything that they've done. Can I pause there for a second? So... I always struggle with, obviously, long-term, thinking long-term seems smart, (laughs) and like that's the right thing to do. But I wonder if you could clarify even more what that might mean, because in my experience, let's say setting really ambitious long-term goals may not be the best policy, because then you're kind of blinded to stuff that's happening along the way, and it's almost self-limiting, like the odds of you getting your goal go up. But I'm curious how you would define like the proper long-term mindset. Well, so I think it, it differs by different persons, but the way I look at it is as follows. Is, is your compensation for your team and your employees geared around what's happening tomorrow or the future? And as a result, is your culture then wrapped around how do you create value in the long run so that every person in that team is mentally wired to think what creates value five years from now, not tomorrow? And so the way you see things manifest is like recruiting. So one of the interesting things we discovered in many of these companies was they all had really robust recruiting functions. And so it wasn't about filling the spot with the guy with the quick resume. It was, we're going to wait to find the right person. I'll give you an amazing example. My brother works at one of these high-flying tech companies, and it's a super fast-growing company, and they really needed someone for a a hyper-fast-growing market. And the company literally waited six months for that hire because they needed to find the right person. And I always say that's now so imbued in the culture of that business that they know we'll never sacrifice hiring. And so I think you look for signals like this that say, hey, we're trying to invest for five years from now or 10 years from now, not now. So come back to some of the examples of culture. Yeah. Uh, We were talking about 3G. Maybe we could start there. The three things we observed were were long-term vision, very strong focus on being tax efficient, and culture. And underneath culture is probably there's – maybe there's a fourth one or it's part of culture is this idea of adding operational value. And culture, I think, like you said, is by far the least talked about, but but I think the most powerful. And the simplest way I I define a company with a great culture is, will that company sustain after the leader that created that business leaves? Can it sustain for generations? So, you know, Danaher's on his third CEO. Nothing has changed. I think there's a great argument to be made that John Malone has created this culture of people who are very focused on X, Y, and Z. And so in the 3G example, what I, what I, everyone has a review on 3G, whether it's good or bad, but what I think I've learned the most is 
that they've created a culture that is sustainable. As illustratively, I imagine if you're the employee at 3G and you just saved a dollar on whatever it is, you feel really good about yourself because the culture rewards that and it encourages that. It encourages that aggressive form of thinking. And that is something that lasts well beyond the founders of that business staying there. And so the more you can define that culture, the more that you can write that culture and build it, the bigger the moat actually becomes over time because that becomes the defining process of that business. So as in other examples are companies that really reward R&D and technology because that was the DNA of that business. That lasts well beyond the founder because they've recruited a team that believes in that. They've built processes that reward that and they encourage that. And so when you have an organization like 3G where the founders fly economy, I'm pretty, you know, when you're flying and you're uncomfortable flying from New York to San Francisco on an economy flight, you feel pretty proud because you're like, hey, the boss is happy that I did that. When you are finding an extra dollar in the budget, you're saying, I'm not going to spend that. I'm going to send it back to home office because that's what they really value. And that is like, it's hard to express, but it's so powerful for these companies lasting for generations. So when you, your initial admiration of Buffett and his, Buffett in particular in this case and his style, has anything changed about your opinion? I guess one way of asking the question would be, would you invest in Berkshire stock today relative to say the S&P 500? Yes, but I'm not sure how much of that is emotional versus, versus <laughs> logic. So here's what I'd say. So after we did this, this journey, you know, and this is again, something we're just doing as friends on the weekends thinking about what makes great compounding businesses. We then went back to Berkshire and said, let's find the pattern of how he invests. So let's dig through the companies he's bought that there's public filing, public filings, and let's look at every ratio. Let's look at every single signal we can find that gives us a, a logic to why he finds these companies. Maybe there's like something hidden in there that you can, you can copy. And the short answer is, it's really hard to do that. Like, there's truly some genius there that it's hard to figure out what it is. Uh, and the other, but the thing that I, th- I think that was more eye-opening for us is the few things that we could pull out of that, uh, we actually felt we're ch- a little bit challenged in today's world. So I'll give you an example. One of the great questions Warren Buffett's asked at meetings is, find me a business other than a brand that can keep its margins for 30 years. And it's really, really hard because at some point everything becomes commoditized and that brand becomes the difference between a 10% margin and a 30% margin business. And I've always thought that was just an amazing lesson for me to learn. But then if I like sort of think about today, a brand means a lot less today than it meant yesterday. The brand of my father is probably not the brand of me. And then as I think as you look at the disruption of commerce in general, if I had a pet, I'd, I'd subscribe to Chewy. I'm not buying the brand that my, my family used to buy. When I'm buying clothes, I'm looking on Instagram. And so that idea that the brand becomes a mode, I think, is a little bit challenged. I'm not saying it's over, but it's definitely a little bit challenged. I think the other lens, which I found challenging, or I think could be challenging for, for some to repeat that, uh, this sort of idea of Berkshire Hathaway tomorrow, is finding these businesses with high fixed costs that have reinvestment modes. So railroads are a great example. The utility business that you have has... You know, we're living in, a, in, an, in an area where there's like asset light businesses. And so building a skill set around that, I think, it could be challenging. And so in no way would I ever say don't invest in Berkshire Hathaway. I own it. I love it. I've learned so much. But I just think that Berkshire of tomorrow will be very different than the one of, of, of yesteryear. Couldn't have asked for a better transition into what I hope will take us some time to explore in, in a lot of detail, which is the idea behind Terra Holdings. So I think this was sort of the the culmination of all this yeah. thinking. Everything, basically all the foundation we've laid thus far has now led to this very particular mission and journey where I think you spend a majority of your investing thinking and time. So talk about the strategy behind Terra, how it came together, and then we'll get into all of the, of the levers and the things that you think about. So after we did this analysis of, okay, can you copy... Buffett and redo it, I think we left it being like, no. And so we started thinking about, well, what if you could just find like, the right pool to fish in and so that you could pick the horse and not the jockey? And I was running a technology business that had heavy bent on software. My friends were all software investors. And we started saying, well, what if you created the Berkshire Hathaway of software? And as we sort of started to look through it, we started saying, well, let's first look at the biggest software companies in the world. And so we looked at a company like SAP, which is, I think, the oldest publicly traded software company in the world, one of the largest 
And what's a fascinating about that business is every customer of SAP complains about SAP. There's no one that says, oh my God, this is the greatest product ever. Nobody. Yet, if I was to ask anyone on the street, what do you think the renewal rate of SAP is, you'd be shocked to find out it's like 98%. And if you remove bankruptcies and mergers, it's you know, 99%. And so what that's implicitly saying is the average customer stays for 50 years. And as a result, the market almost never lets that business trade below six times recurring revenue. And so we were like, wow, if Warren Buffett was 30 years old, this is all he'd be investing in. Because he has a business that has clearly has a moat, because if your customer lasts for 50 years, it's almost definitely a moat. You can raise price every year, no one's going anywhere. And you have the ability to reinvest for growth. That sounds like an amazing place to be. And so we spent this time with the public market and said, okay, wow, that's an amazing fact. Software is great, but it's already priced in. So then we looked at private equity and said, hey, has private equity figured this out? And short answer is, you know, six of the top 10 performing private equity funds have a very high focus on software. And so we said, okay, private equity's figured this out. Is there anything for us to do here? And so when I left my job and, and my partners later left their jobs, the first thing we sort of did was like an exploratory tool, a listening tour. We went around and we just started calling software company after software company, private equity guy after private equity guy. And we said, listen, we're not private equity. We want to be the Berkshire Hathaway of software. So what does that mean for you? We want to buy your business and we never want to sell it. We want to reinvest in it, and we want to create a transition so that your baby always stays, that the heritage, culture, and legacy of that business never changes. And is that an opportunity? And what we discovered very quickly was it was a much bigger opportunity than we'd ever imagined. So while I think every company in the world has been called on by software, there are plenty of opportunities for businesses that don't desire to be sold, by private, sold through private equity and are excited at the opportunity to work with something different. So talk about some of the key features, uh, checklist, if you will. You mentioned you're out of venture because you can't find the thread or the pattern. It's not systematic. Um, so describe the systematic kind of checkpoints that you look for at the beginning of this journey now. So I think it's, I don't know how long this has been going, but we were talking earlier that, you know, you've at least visited, you know, dozens and dozens of software companies all over the place. So you've got a big enough sample now that I think you've started to refine really what it is you're looking for. So maybe go through some of those checkpoints and, and I might have some follow-up questions on those. And we can talk about sourcing too, which is an interesting dynamic in this world. But the key thing we look for in a business is the product solution or tool mission critical. Is it something that you can't live without? The second is, is the, is the retention rate very high? And if you can figure that part out, you've pretty much figured out the business. And so any business with a high, high rate of recurring revenue and the retention rate being very high is a really, really good business. And I give this often example of two, I think of businesses as apartment buildings. So if you have building A, which is filled with doctors and lawyers, and you have building B, which is filled with tourists, uh, you know, summer vacation counselors, startups, what building would you pay more for? you're always going to pay more for building A because there's great visibility in that revenue. And I think uh, sticky software is that. So we look for businesses where the recurring revenue is very high, the retention is very high, the price point is high, NPS scores are very high, so the customers are happy with the product. We look for businesses that are integrated into many different points of a solution. So it's not just I use it for one thing. It's that one thing that's in, that then integrates into 20 other parts of your business. And if you can get all that right, you have a business that you know can last customers can stay on for 50 years. Let's talk about the counter arguments to this, yeah. to all these great positive features. Somewhere I saw a chart from you that basically shows the performance of some of those private equity vehicles that focus on software, a sort of an index, if you will, of software companies in the public markets. And there are these like beautiful charts, right? That had you been at them in the beginning of the chart would look phenomenal. <laughs> you would have had great results. And I always just, as someone that's worked with like back tests a lot, whenever I see something like that, I'm always just get a little uneasy and just yeah. think, well, okay, that's great. It's worked really well in the past. Like what structurally is it about this? And maybe in the public markets, you think it's been priced in and, and the, the future won't be the same. But with a company that's got really good profitability, 99% retention rates. It just makes me think like that's something that's ripe for competition for someone to come in and try to take share from that. Like 
So, so how do you think about yeah, let me the, a little the, more, the defensibility? Yeah, let me add a little more color to that. And, and so another key attribute we look at is, is the underlying asset that it's serving going to be around for a long time? So um, we look for companies that services, service utilities, service governments, service healthcare, service industries that last for a long time. A, a great example is dental practice software. Dentists have a 1% failure rate, the lowest failure rate of any small business in America. So if you're the software serving the dentist, you're probably going to be around a long time because that dentist is around for a long time. But if you're a marketing technology solution, the chance of you having a low turn rate is, is almost impossible because the technology changes so fast and the end, the end asset you're servicing is changing so fast. So your product's probably not worth as much. The other part of the thing that we, I, I was remiss not to mention was we look for businesses with small TAMs. So we're not looking for the $10 billion market that SAP, Oracle, or Workday is trying to go after. We're going for like the $400 million TAM where it's not really worth the time of the big guy to come in there. The other element I think that's important to sort of understand the risk of disruption is if you do a really great job with your customer, the desire for being disrupted is, is not, you don't want to deal with that. So think of the, dental, the guy that runs the dental practice. He installs the software when he starts his practice. It now does his billing, his scheduling, his accounts payable, his practice management. Everything's in the software. And so if someone comes to him and says, hey, I'm going to give you a 25% discount if you take my product, there's almost a 0% chance that dentist is going to go for that. Why? Imagine the disruption of saying, what if I miss next payroll? What if my billing gets screwed up for the week that you're changing the software? What if my schedule gets messed up and all my patients get canceled on? For a very incremental benefit of price, it doesn't actually make sense to switch because the switching costs are so, so, so high. So we try to find these pockets of the world where you don't actually have to worry too much about the external competition, and instead you can spend that time creating a better product for that customer. You had this great chart that showed um, the average lifespan of a company in the S&P 500, which I've seen before. It's like kind of this, this casca- chart that cascades down. The average expectancy now is like a little more than 10 years. It used to be 60. Um, so it's changed a lot over the years. But what I had never seen before, which was really neat, was to break that down by sector. And you, you've mentioned some of the sectors, utilities, materials, energy, telecom, et cetera. I'm curious if you then break that down any more by like the cyclicality of those underlying things. So let's take energy, for example. Obviously, energy is hyper-cyclical. So are materials, you have these like crazy high highs, these crazy low lows. And I totally agree as a person that runs a business that uses software for a lot of the solutions, more and more of it built in-house, but but some of it that's still third-party software, um, sort of under the subscription license or, or subscription model rather, that, yeah, you, you don't want to switch. It's a total pain to switch when times are good. But when times go bad, it's actually something you're willing to put in the work to do, to tear out a system and install a new one. So how do you think about cyclicality of the underlying customer base? It's huge. And so I think when you're doing that analysis, as an example, if you're the energy company and oil prices are down 40%, are you going to take away your accounts payable software? Probably not, because what are you going to do? And so you try to find those pockets. Another great example that we've spent a massive amount of time is in compliance. So there could be another great sell-off on Wall Street. J.P. Morgan is not cutting compliance spend. And if they are, they're not cutting it on the product that they sort of depend to run their AML and KYC checks. And so you, you try to find these businesses that, yes, there's cyclicality in the end industries. You may not grow that as fast that next year, signing the next incremental customer that's moving from paper and pen to your software. But that recurring base is so sticky that you, you're, you're plenty good on, on your outcome. What have you done to kind of strengthen the foundations of your conviction that this is the space you want to play in? Because one of the things we've talked about a bunch uh, over the last couple of months as we've talked is a lot of the benefit of this software kind of holding company structure comes in the later dated years. So thinking long term, 
um, that with these super low churn rates, the mad the compounding magic really happens not in years one, two, and three, but in years you know five through thirty or something like this. So that means that you need to be around yeah. still doing this in five to thirty years. You've done a ton, right? Like it seems like you've kind of experienced every kind of investing, entrepreneurship, business. So what what are the core elements that make you think you'll definitely be focused on this for that long to be able to take advantage of that structural feature of you know low churn software? Yeah, and maybe I'll back up and actually give you like the typical profile of the person's company we're trying to buy because yeah. it probably it helps put this in context. So we are not like going after high flying, hundred percent growth companies. We're generally not finding venture-backed companies. I can give you the rationale behind that. We're generally not going after stuff that's sexy. We're going after the company that's been around anywhere from 10 to 30 years that's built a really, really sticky solution for an industry that it knows incredibly well. And the founder is generally somebody who's looking for one of two things. They're looking for a partner to help them grow and build that business, or they're looking for a really smooth transition. And for the latter, it's oftentimes I'm not looking to – I want to sell the business because I'm retiring and I want to go – live on a beach, but I want to sell sell it to the right hands because I care about the employees, I care about my customers, and I really care about my legacy, and my name is on the fire department, and I I wouldn't feel right if someone bought my company, fired half the team, and raised prices on the customers that got me in business, and then flipped it three years later. That doesn't sit right with them. It's a bit of that Berkshire Hathaway pitch. And so in that bucket, a lot of our value add comes from, listen, we're long-term hands, we're committed to it, and more than anything else, we're going to help, we're going to be transparent of how we intend to build and grow the business with you. On the former, the ones who want to continue to build, which is surprisingly the, major- the majority of the ones that we've come across recently, it's very much how do you add value. And so to your point, the single biggest differentiator we have when we go sit down with a company is we come in with an incredibly detailed operational plan. We're not going there and said, hey, let us buy your company. Here's a big check. We say, hey, we'd love to buy your company, and here's our plan to build it, and here's exactly how we intend to do it. Everything from here's how we'd run sales and marketing to here's how we intend to create the culture of return on investment thinking. And oftentimes what happens in that conversation is it's not so much about, okay, what price? It's like, well, talk to me how you're going to create that value. Talk to me how you're going to change the culture of the company. Talk to me about how that impacts the remaining equity stake I have in 20 years. And so you ground the conversation in the, in the idea that you're adding a lot of value and you're not coming in there sort of attra- extracting value. And it, it is really game-changing. I mean, I think we've had numerous discussions with people that will literally come to us and say, I have a bid at X from XYZ private equity firm. Come in 20% and it's yours. And it's, it's, it's been very powerful. So I think we ground the conversation day one and saying, we intend to hold the thing for a long time. So if your interest is to flip it, we're not the right guys. We intend to actually help you build this business and we intend to grow it. And if you're okay for all that, Let's go do this together. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's thinking about a ton of philosophical similarities to all the things that Brent Bishore and I have talked about, uh, which is this you know, very long kind of permanent capital type structure, a very specific investing thesis, a process, a sort of a systematic way of thinking about sourcing and screening and doing due diligence on opportunities. I mean, a lot of it rings very true to that same style. One thing that's, that's very different is the companies that you're going after. And the first thing that pops to mind is valuation. So instead of paying, you know, four or five times trailing owner earnings, maybe you might be willing to pay more for a company that has the economic characteristics that software businesses have. So talk about your philosophy of price and, and how you how you think about valuation as a key input into the success of, of the company. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think the first time I met Brent, I joked, I love the price you buy stuff, but I'll pay more because my business will be around for 50 years. And I believe that. And so I think you pay more for that business. And so 
in software, the, the, I think uh, maybe I'll back up. So software is broadly sold in two different ways. The f- license maintenance is historically the way it's done, where you sell a dollar of software, and then you charge 20 cents for maintenance every year after that. And then you stack that maintenance revenue on top of each other, and that becomes your sticky recurring revenue base. And the other part of software is SaaS or subscription, where you're basically charging a, an annual fee the same price every year, and then hopefully if you're really good, you can raise that price and build that over time. And in both those models, the, the end state recurring revenue generally has anywhere from 30 to 50% cash flow margins. And what's powerful about that is you can look at the type of software, you can understand the market they serve, and you can pretty quickly figure out, okay, when that company is steady state, it's going to have this type of margin. And so if you're willing to make that, that jump, you can end up buying these companies at, so the, the average software multiple of some of the companies we, we compare ourselves to are acquiring these businesses for anywhere from one to three times recurring revenue. And everyone's like, that's crazy, three times revenue. I would never pay three times revenue. But if you believe the steady state and margins are 50%, you're really buying it at six, six times steady state cash flow. That seems like a pretty good deal, particularly on a business where you think you can raise the price every year. And so uh, what we love about our model is we, get, we think we, get in, we definitely get in cheaper than traditional private equity given the story and what we commit. We think we can drive that value by helping them build that process. And so we oftentimes say our advantage is we're the 3G of sales and marketing. We're not cost-cutting, but sales and marketing. And then by having scale, you can sometimes centralize some of this value over time to create economies of scale across all the businesses. It reminds me of a question I meant to ask when we were talking about GBI, which is sales and marketing. Um, so you've told me some great stories about just systematic thinking, again, about how to build a sales culture, how to build a process. Uh, so maybe talk about your experience and what you've learned there. It's sort of the, uh, the aspect of every business, which is absolutely essential, but I think is probably the least understood. It's, it's, I've, I certainly have struggled with it, right, thinking, yeah. about, thinking about sales and marketing. So what, what have you learned um, in those two arenas that, that you think you'll bring to the floor in the software world? Yeah, it's, it's probably best done as an example. So we, I, we've been on 70 flights in the last six or seven months across the country meeting software businesses. And uniformly, everyone says, I want help in sales and marketing. And, and remember, we're generally going more to enterprise software, not I'm selling to the end consumer. And you sit down with these businesses, and, and, and so literally the, the first deal we're doing, it's in an interesting space, and the founder's complaining to us saying, listen, the hard part is it's like a year before my customer says yes. And so how do I mo- motivate the sales force? What do I do? And so we said, well, let us give you our plan on how to do that. And so we gave him two playbooks. First, we gave him, hey, here's our idea for leads. The problem is when you have a guy on the phone calling to get leads for the guy that's on the field making that sales process, the guy on the phone is really focusing on the low-hanging fruit because he knows he's not going to get that commission for a year when his partner in the field closes that deal. And so he literally self-selects for what could be the possibly the lowest-hanging fruit, but not the thing that actually drives the most value, which is probably getting that long sales cycle customer that's worth a lot more than the small ones. And so an example of how we helped this company grow is we said, listen, every day if that outbound salesperson makes 30 calls for the entire week, they get a 50-buck bonus. And we said, if they're successful, the process is you make the phone call, you set up a conference call, you set up a demo, you set up an in-person meeting, and then the contract. And you have these five steps. And so instead of just commissioning that person on the final step, which is signing the contract, you said, okay, I'm going I'm to compensate you on the quantity of calls. Then the, then the number of demos. And then I'm going to conference you on the number of in-person meetings. And it's a step function difference. So if you were putting numbers, you'd say, okay, if you do your 50 calls, I'm giving you $50. But if you get four in-person demos, I'm giving you $1,000. And if you get those meetings to contract, I'm giving you $10,000. What you do is you, your, your person now on the phone is not just focused on what can make me the quick sale. He's like, listen, I just make the calls. I'm going to get more meetings, more demos. And so they're incentivized to continue to grow. That's better for the company. And so we've found this to be an incredibly powerful tool for those people to kind of build their businesses. Another example, and I think it's the one that you were referencing, is sales territories. And so I've always struggled when we ran, I remember running GBI, the New York region was always the highest performing reason. And even though I love the salespeople, I always wondered, 
is that really the best salesperson or is that because they have that territory? And I think if you talk to people generally in sales, you know, there's a few regions, New York, Chicago, you know, there's a few areas that are always the highest performing. And so in the same exact company, we said, give us all your sales data. And we had no transaction with this business. And we said, listen, we took the data and we said, you know what, now going forward, you need to collect this information. For every meeting you have, you have to say, I met Patrick. He lives in New York. He's a really big Jets fan. He likes our product for reason Y, and he, ha- and he hates our product for reason Z. And he's married, and he's got two kids, and he went to an Ivy League school. And after you collect this data of attributes every single meeting you go to, you notice some interesting patterns. And so what you find is you say, hey, you're New York sales guy. You've done an amazing job. But did you know that your close rate on the Ivy League-educated guy that lives in New York is like 90%, but your close rate on women is like 2%? So guess what? You're no longer the sales guy for New York. You're now the sales guy for the guys that are just like Patrick and who like the product for the thesis that you're the best at selling at. And so we gave this, gave this away, and, and that company, after a quarter, it was a dramatic increase, a little bit of luck. And lo and behold, we end up getting a deal out of that. And so we are incredibly data-intensive about qualifying everything from the lead to the salesperson so that that random email you get has been tested hundreds and hundreds of times with the characteristics of what kind of response rate will the guy like your profile open or not. It's funny that a software business <laughs> isn't thinking in these terms, right? That, that this sort of structure that you're talking about, I guess it's, in some ways this is like a CRM system. You could do this within a CRM. But I'm curious about like literally the nitty-gritty of this. Like how are you doing this analysis? Were you just doing an Excel? Uh, was it something more complicated? We built an app, yeah. So, so we built an app where, so one of, the, <laughs> one of the funny things we did is we, built, we worked with them to build the app. And then if the salesperson did not con- fill in the app within 24 hours of meeting Patrick, he would not get that, he or she would not get that commission. And so you create buy-in day one, and then you collect this data, and you're constantly analyzing to see different patterns. And, and some of the patterns are obvious. There's, there are certain salespeople that are amazing at female, but not great at male, and vice versa. But the more subtle ones are, hey, do you know what Patrick's profile? They don't like the cold call. They love watching the, web, the recorded webinar. Or the people that like our thesis for that reason X, they love our product for reason X. So let's feel that that guy gets the white paper, but the person that's doing it because he heard other people are doing it, let's send him a packet in the mail. And so you collect, you're constantly collecting data and optimizing for everything from your leads to your end salespeople. And we've created just such robust playbooks behind that, that. So when we're talking, if I'm trying to pitch you to sell your business and say, hey, let me buy 75%, you keep 25%, they can see that there's going to be value added from, from that process. So I'm sure you've thought a ton, I know you've thought a ton about Constellation Software, which is sort of the paradigmatic, like perfect software roll-up company that trades publicly. You know, it really hasn't needed to tap capital markets for funding. It's sort of self-funding. It's this like incredibly virtuous cycle that happens kind of in the way you're describing you hope to build Terra. So talk about maybe any lessons from watching Mark Leonard and, and watching Constellation and what the key differences are. My guess is one of them is centralization. I think Constellation basically buys companies and completely leaves them alone. But I'm curious what you've learned from Constellation as a capital allocation engine, uh, as an acquiring engine, and in software specifically. Discipline. So Constellation was started uh, 23 years ago by a former venture capitalist who realized that the stack of maintenance revenue on software is really, really, really sticky. And so he said, I'm going to go buy these companies with high maintenance software. I'm going to keep the management in place, but I'm going to tell the management you have to get to 40% cash flow margins, and then you get a bonus. 
And so he would buy a company, get it to 40% cash flow margins, take the money that that business spun off, and buy the next business. And it was very much the cigar butt-like scenario where you're milking the existing asset every single year. You're raising price 8%. You lose 8% of customers, so you net end up, or you lose 6% of customers, so you still grow 2% a year. And you're able to create this amazing cash flow engine to keep reinvesting. And what I think we have learned from studying Constellation and interviewing tons of people from Constellation is they're the most disciplined buyer I have ever, ever seen. If it's, you know, one penny above that, that you know, there was a story of Warren Buffett and ABC. If, you know, if you're 25 cents above that price, you won't go. These guys are by the penny. And so they have an amazing structure there. I think that the second thing that's sort of interesting about the way he's done it is it's, it's a process. It is not we are experts in software. It is not that we have a vision of the future. It literally looks for, is your retention right here? Is your revenue here? And can we buy your company here? Okay, we'll buy you. And by making it completely process-based, you can hire hundreds of people to keep finding deals for you. Uh, and so when we look at that, we said we learned a lot that the model of buying recurring revenue at cheap prices works really well to compound capital, and as, particularly as, if you can reallocate it. But what we also said is that probably works less favorably when you have larger amounts of capital and when there's lots of people that have figured that out too. And that's where this operating lens came in for us, where we said, imagine if you had that power, that many businesses and the power that that has, but you said, guess what, you know, 200 companies of ours, here's this playbook for sales and marketing that's working for the company Y, and you're, you're in the exact same space, why don't you try this too? And trying to figure out what are the best practices we can apply across that. And then taking the talent to do that, which is another thing that I think uh, most holding companies haven't, haven't gotten, gotten to, or for good reason, but we're exploring it. I can't help but start to have my sort of like an outside investor diligence hat on thinking about your process. And I'd love to hear about that the top of the funnel that you've built. So you need to source maybe talk about the universe, like how many companies, software companies are there of size and, and type that fit your criteria? And then how do you, how do you get in to see them? Like, how, how are they hearing about you? Like, yeah. you, you've been all over the place meeting these people. Like, how's that happening? We think worldwide, there's probably 100,000 software companies that are in the target range and size that we're looking for. And what's interesting about that number is it's growing. It's, it's huge not, it's, number, yeah. it, You know, think about the VC darling of seven years ago that caps out at 10 or $20 million in revenue. That's an amazing target for us. And so that these cycles of venture capital are actually great for buying, quote-unquote, boring businesses later on because not everything becomes a unicorn, and so there's lots of great – so that pool is growing every single day. So we think that the market size is, is just – enormous. And the way we source is as follows. We've built a database of 10,000 companies. We literally went through every single company and put it in a bucket of, do you think it'll have the recurring revenue that the retention rate we'd ha- we want? Do you think it's in the size range we like? Let's go reach out to the founder. And so we, just as you can imagine, uh, as when we go into companies and give them the sales tool, we have the same type of analysis. And so if we're reaching out to a compliance software business, we have a science on what the highest open rate of that is. Um, and, but, but more than anything else, I think at, at sort of when we do the redux and talking to the companies after we've sort of become friends and, and got to know them, what we realize is they resonate with us because we're not coming in there as capital. We're coming there as like, listen, we're some operators. You know, we started these businesses. We'd love to kind of help you build your business. And they respond. And the data here is, is pretty incredible. Um, our open rate on a cold email is 20 to 25%. Uh, and I think, and when we sort of interview our friends that work in private equity, it's closer to five percent. And so I think it's the combination of having all the science when we when we reach out, uh, but also more like just coming in that that first email, that first outreach is so deep. It's not just can I have a cold phone call with you. It's like I looked at your business. Here's what we think about it. We'd love to talk to you. What are the levers that drive that conversion? Do you think most is it the title of the email? It's the depth of the sections. Like you said, there's a lot of science behind it. I think so. it's sincerity. So it's it's you come off with a sincere interest in what they're doing and what you think how you could add value. You know, another great example is of our, I think one of our biggest advantages in sourcing is when we go meet a company, we go in as ourselves. We go in the same clothes that every time I've seen you, I wear jeans and a button-down shirt and a sweater. 
and I go meet a company, and I'm exactly going like that. And I make a joke that the person who sort of connected me and, and Ro, my, my partner in this endeavor, his younger brother works at one of the best software private equity firms in the world, and we happen to be going to see the same company one time, which is very rare. And I see him sitting there, and he's 25 or 26 years old. You know, I love him, but I, so I can make fun of him. But he's going in with a pocket square, an Armani suit, a fancy watch, and flying first class. And I'm pr- pretty sure when he goes and meets that 65-year-old who's retiring and wants to sell his business, it's not the right impression. You know, I don't know if you want the guy, that guy sitting there saying, wow, this guy is 26 years old. He's flying nicer than I ever have. He's got a nicer suit than I ever had. He's nicer luggage than I've ever had. And that, I think that relatability really helps us. We walk in the door and we come in with backpacks and we say, here's exactly how we, we think your business. It's not just a pile of money. Uh, and that's been a huge advantage. You know, the other two ways that we, we so that's direct. We, so we just, we are, I mean, we are ninjas at sourcing. We will find a nugget and chase that person down. Half these companies don't even have uh, LinkedIn accounts. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And we, re- and we get on the planes. We've been on 70 flights in six months. And it, it, we really we try to meet them in person because I think that's how we can kind of, kind of show our value. The, the, the second way we, we look through is intermediaries. Everybody looks at intermediaries. And we haven't really gone down that path because it's a bit harder to, to give our pitch, which is, listen, we're probably not the highest bidder, but we're going to be the most value-added person to you. And the last is venture. And we originally, when we started, we said, hey, venture capital is the best place to be because if I'm the GP of a venture firm and I have that company that I've owned for seven years and it's topping out at 15 or $20 million of revenue, that's not going to return the fund. And every day that doesn't sell, it's probably going to hurt my IRR. And what we found, though, is the problem with taking venture money is you, you develop really bad hygiene. You assume that there's endless money. You assume that the problem is throwing money at it. And so we, I remember we, one of our first transactions we were excited about, we're sitting with a founder, and he was growing 100% a year, and then he started growing 15% a year. And it was a market size issue. It wasn't because the VC, the VC missed, mistook the market size. And so we're saying, hey, like, we'd be a great alternative for you. We're going to build this business. And he says, yeah, I need to hire a dozen more people in marketing because this marketing tool is working. And I'm like, well, where's the money come from that? He's like, we'll go raise another round of funding. And so you develop these really bad habits about throwing, throwing money at the problem. Uh, and the second problem is your talent doesn't want to stay anymore because when you're no longer, your options aren't worth what you thought they were, you've got a complete redo of the employee base. And so I think VC will be a place to play in at some point. But right now, I think that, that those two issues make it harder. You mentioned the holding company structure as kind of the way that you're going to go about doing this. And a middle piece of one of the three common threads you, you found across compounders being taxes, thinking about taxes. So maybe talk a little bit about that angle, how you think about, I guess, keeping Uncle Sam out of the, uh, the compound growth rate of Terra Holdings. What lessons have you learned there, and how do you think about that? You know, it was, really, it was a really big decision early on to try to be a holding company, not a fund. And obviously, you, you know, sort of like when you do something different, it's not always easiest to, to raise money. So what we decided early on was the beauty of these businesses is that, is that that recurring stream of cash flow. There is a there is a stack of cash under each one of those recurring revenue streams, and it would be unfortunate to buy one company, take that money, dividend it out, and then pay taxes on it and not be able to reinvest it. And so, what we said is, let's create a holding company where if we have three companies in the portfolio and two of them are are not growing but generating great cash, we could take that cash and reinvest it into a business that actually had better growth prospects, or take it and buy the next business. And that allowed you to recycle the cash far more effectively than constantly paying it out to investors. And by nature of not having to charge carry, there was no impetus to make, you're not making money by selling the business. And so the original insight we had was, well, if you've got a great business, like, why do you sell it? Uh, And the answer was, well, how do we make money? And for us, we said, you know, we're in this for like the 20-year game or the 50-year game. So 
we'd rather compound that wealth as opposed to charging fees for it. As you think about the portfolio itself, sort of diversification, uh, portfolio construction, something I'm trained to think about always when, when viewing even something like this that's very different from, say, a public market portfolio. How do you think about that, whether or not you want to intentionally drive like different kinds of businesses? Maybe you want some concentration in industrials and some in energy and some in materials. Um, how do you think about diversification? So I'd be lying if I said we've given it more than like a 2% thought. <laughs> uh, you know, we are, one of the things I think we're doing differently is as we sort of started talking about this thesis and developing it and, and building these playbooks, we had lots of money thrown our way. And we made this conscious decision and said, listen, let us go figure this out ourselves. Let us go buy the first deal ourselves. Let us go spend that, that time recruiting an amazing talent, recruiting, ma- making this deal happen. And then we'll, we'll come back to you because we wanted to build the right musculature around the culture. So as an example, our first hire was a Warren MBA who literally came on to work for free. And he had no, no interest at all besides learning. And so this is a guy who worked at, who has more years of software private equity experience than I and my partner combined times five. Yet he was willing to come and work for free because he said, I, I love the vision of what you're building and I want to help do it. And so he does, does everything from making photocopies to you know, getting on planes with us. And so uh, that's something, if we were trying to buy 10 companies and create a portfolio, like, it would be harder and harder to create that type of culture day one. The second part is because so much of our value is trying to create operational strength with these businesses, you need time to build, again, that musculature, that what works, what doesn't work, what sort of looks good on paper, what doesn't work. And so we are nowhere near the idea of having portfolio construction. I think in a dream world, of course, we'd have you know, something serving industrials, whatever, telecom, et cetera. But for now, we're very much focused on what are the most defensible businesses that are just going to be there forever, that have these stacks of cash flow underneath it, where there is massive inefficiency that we can help fix. How do you think about capital sourcing? So you've got your own capital, equity capital, let's say. You've got the potential for outside investor capital, and then you've got debt, different types of debt, seller debt and, and bank debt. If you've got those four options, how are you approaching that problem? You already mentioned you know, you're starting by yourselves, but in the future, how, how will you think about those sources of financing to get this thing going? So we are not scared of debt. I think, if again, one of the differences that we have with any of these big holding companies is, is other than John Malone, most of them don't use lots of debt. I actually think software is a beautiful business to use debt because you have great visibility into that revenue. And so if you can lower your cost of capital by taking on debt, it, it, it's a beautiful thing. And so I think we intend to use lots of debt. We intend to, in most of the deals we negotiate, there is a form of seller debt. And then I think over time, we will we'll bring on investors because I think the opportunity set was so much larger than we expected. When we got going, we said, wow, there's a lot of private equity firms, there's a lot of search funds, there's a lot of people going after the space. And what we've been, I think, most excited by is how many people said, I will never sell to private equity. I really need to find a partner like you. And uh, I didn't mention this before, but Every single deal we do, we're the only party at the table. There's no one competing on the other end because it's really it's very much a partnership. Do you think that will change? Absolutely. I mean, I think we are. I think similar to Brent in this in this time, where we're able to build these very close relationships with the founders because we're spending so much time with them. Part of trying to spend the money to find really great young talent is that so we're not the only ones doing that. Over time, I think it'll be competitive. But what I think won't change is the culture. And so I guarantee, if you meet anyone who works with us. They will be no different than I. They will say, listen, I'm in this not to make, I don't get a fee for closing my deal. I'm invested in the equity of that business to compound for a long period of time. Another great example is the average company we go to is about 100 employees. When you go to the founder and you say, how many, how many, how many of those are engineers? He'll very probably be like, 80, 85 of them. And then you'll be like, well, how many of them are salespeople? I say, two, and I'm one of them. And so uh, in the beginning, you're like, oh my God, this is crazy. Your lifetime value is a million dollars for your customer. Like, why don't you have 10 salespeople? But when you talk to, you know, 100 of these companies, you realize that they are culturally run by engineers. And so the reward for that culture of that organization was, let's create more widgets on a product. And the reason I bring this story up is, so we coming in there, realizing that there's probably a mismatch and there's a cultural fix, you have to be able to be humble and relatable to the founder to convince them to make that cultural change. 
where you're saying, listen, let's look at the data. You have a product, your customers are using widgets one through 20. Why are you working on widget 300? Let's right-size the engineering department, let's build a culture on ROI and sales, and let's build something great. And that cannot be done by the stick. You really need to work collaboratively to build that. And so we think a lot about how do we sort of create a culture, a quote-unquote, the top, that can pervade down to everybody else. Well, Tarot is something that I'll, I'll certainly be watching closely and look forward to hearing about You know, the various stages of the journey. Obviously, software is, a, is an incredible business done right. Uh, and I, I never stop thinking about that Andreessen uh, Horowitz quote, you know, software is eating the world. I think that's like their mission statement or their motto or something. So a really powerful idea. Maybe we'll switch gears for the last, you know, 10 or 20 minutes and talk about some of the other topics that you've got, somehow got your hands into and, and learned a ton about. Uh, the first of which is crypto. So uh, you wrote a piece that was, as far as I can tell, probably the most widely circulated bear case on crypto, you know, north of 100,000 people uh, reading reading your your arguments. And, and I know you've got investments in crypto. So, uh, and, and certainly like a company like CoVenture has a crypto wing to it. So talk about your negative, but maybe even your balanced view on crypto as an asset class and as, and it's kind of perspective returns for investors. Sure. So I'll give you, maybe I'll break into the bear and the bull case and then my, my overarching view. So, and again, prefacing that, you know, I was, it was a little fortuitous that I got into crypto because I was in a business that sold gold and a lot of gold bugs are crypto at the time, Bitcoin bugs that became crypto bugs. And so I remember meeting some of like the early movers and shakers of the crypto space, you know, before there was, it was anything and, and now seeing them become billionaires. And, and so I say this all for the preface that I, I still believe there's, there's reason to be bullish, but I'll give you the bear case. So the first is, I think the single most bearish thing about the crypto business is you're now 10 years into it and there's still not a, a application that depends on a distributed ledger that anyone uses regularly or has any mission critical part to it. And that is a little bit alarming to me. And so have we developed this amazing technology that just has no use case, potentially. The second thing that I just think was the original use case everyone thought was, hey, it's gonna replace currency, it's gonna be used in Kenya and Zimbabwe and all these countries. And I just think that was like so short-sighted. If you're a country that has a weak currency, you are not incentivized as, a, as someone running that country to have another parallel currency. In fact, one of their greatest controls over you is forcing you to use that currency. So. India, China, Argentina, Zimbabwe, they do not want a parallel currency challenging the rule of government. And so the idea that a currency could be used, that it'd be used to treat it as currency, I think is just that, that argument is like out the window. It's the same reason why gold is not currency. The, the third reason I felt sort of bearish, a little bit bearish on this market was it's a little funny to me and a little bit uh, ironic that the biggest business in crypto is Coinbase. It's like the modern version of a bank. And so that was like the antithesis of what Satoshi was trying to create. You know, he, he didn't want it to be a bunch of bankers and Wall Street guys coming in. And, and essentially, that's what we have. Right? I think people making all the money are sort of traders and hoarders. And, and Coinbase surely charges me, charges me a lot more than my bank charges me. And then I think the last point, and this is one that I think taps into why crypto has been successful, is it came at the perfect time of like low interest rates, inequality, anti-establishment, anti-government, anti-bank and lots of intellect. And you had this combination of this desire to like be different. And so everyone thought that, th that cryptocurrencies were gonna change the world because it was a great technology. And in reality, it happened, it won because of speculation. And so I always joke, how many people, when they were saying you should buy cryptocurrencies, tell you it's because of speculation? Or do they argue like, oh, the blockchain is going to disintermediate every industry in the world? It's more the latter. And, and that's like completely wrong. You, you know, you, you, so you're, 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 the price action was right, but you were totally wrong in that thesis. And so I think that's just a bear case where you're, you're winning not because you were intellectually accurate, you were winning because of speculation. And I think that was just, and that happened because you tapped into all these elements of society. And I'll tell you that the funny last one is, after I wrote that article, and I have almost zero presence online, the quantity of hate mail and Twitter hate and medium hate, and I mean, it was mind-blowing. And I think any community that's so emotional is probably less logical than they need to be for success. On the, on the other side, though, I, I think the bull case of crypto to me is, is, is really threefold. 
The first is, I do think Bitcoin has created some store of value to it. I think there's a community that will always ascribe value to it. And whether that value is $1,000, $10,000, or $20,000, I don't know. But there's some inherent value there. Just like gold, gold has very little utility, but it has value because you think it has value, I, have, I think it has value. And, and so the arguments of it should be worth as much as gold, I find that hard to believe. You know, gold's been around for 5,000 years, so every culture, religion, society ascribes value. Bitcoin is, is nowhere near that. And so I think that's one reason to sort of, there's some bullishness. The second is, is just a thought experiment. So I went to you, Patrick, and I said, hey, the smartest engineers in the world are all working on one project. The best guy from Google, Facebook, Yahoo, et cetera, are all working on one project. Do you want to invest in it? The chance of you saying no, even as much as you and I don't understand venture, is still probably pretty low. We're probably going to still invest in that because it's just the way that our minds work. It's hard to price the existential. It's hard to price the exponential. And it's hard to figure out these things that you just like, you see such smart talent. And it's that FOMO, it's that greed, that kind of hard, again, very, very hard to price. Um, and I think the last thing, and this is, I don't know if this is bullish for crypto or not, but I think it matters to me, is the most amazing thing that's happened is it forced us to think, like, things can be better, things can be different. Why do I have to wait two days for a wire? Why, can't, why does it cost so much to send money to a different country? And so I don't know if that's great for the blockchain or not, but I do know that it's created this amazing feeling of these things can be better and that will create lots of innovation in the future. So I'm a philosophy junkie by background. That was sort of my first love and first passion. And I realized that this could be a neat opportunity to hear a little bit about the Seek philosophy. I, I really don't know anything about it, to be honest. I, I read a little bit in preparation, but, but I actually, I kind of cut it short because I figured it would just be more fun to hear to hear it from you. So maybe you could outline kind of what, what the broad philosophy is, at least is how, how you interpret it and the impact that it has on, on your behavior. We talked about uh, sort of a charitable mindset earlier, so I know that's part of it. But uh, if you could expand on that, that would be very interesting. Sikhism evolved out of India 500 plus years ago. And it really uh, rooted itself in the idea of equality. India as a society is not one of e- equality. It's a caste system. Women are, different, are treated differently than men. And it sort of challenged the norm by saying everybody is equal. And so uh, one of the funny examples is uh, most Sikhs have the last name Singh, and most women have the last name Kaur. Singh means king or lion, and Kaur means princess or queen. And the idea was your last name signified what caste you were and how you were treated in society. And the idea is if you remove last name from the society – then there's no telling the difference between you and me. And so it rooted in this idea of equality, hard work, and giving back, which were, you know, interestingly, not traditional values of that time or, or that place. And I, I think what sort of happened over time was because it was different, it felt it's gone through lots and lots of prejudice, lots and lots of genocide over time. And what that did to, like, the community, I think probably impact on me, although I've never thought about it in a deep way, is it created this idea of res- resilience, that, like, psychic residue, whether you're religious or not, you hear these stories of people who've sort of fought for you to be here today. You hear these stories of people who've done great service to others, and it just becomes part of your culture, part of who you are. And I always said, I felt really lucky in that I was a Sikh person born in America because it's like the best place in the world to practice this faith. Everyone believes in equality. Everyone believes in working hard, and everybody believes in actually giving back. And those are actually the tenets we're taught from day one. So it's a really unique faith. I think it's a very young faith, and so it's still finding its place in the world. But it, it, uh, it's definitely been an interesting experience. Are there traditions that are common across the tradition that you partake in that have special significance for you? I, I again, don't know much about that. Yes, but they're not. I wouldn't say there are traditions that are fairly different. So most Sikhs go to the equivalent of a Gurdwara or a temple once a week. Part of that is adjusting to, I think, Western society. One of the things I think that is rooted, very much rooted into the culture is the idea of giving back. So Sikhs, you know, from day one are really taught that you should give back. In fact, on my right arm, you'll see that I have a, a steel bangle, and most Sikhs do. And it's literally a reminder every day to do good and to help others and to act in a righteous manner. And so a really interesting observation is if you sort of look around the world, you'll be shocked at how many politicians 
are Sikhs in countries where there are extreme minorities. 20% of the Canadian cabinet is Sikhs. And wow. the observation is because it came from this culture that was rooted in like justice and taking care of others that led for them to sort of follow that path. So I think, I don't know if there's a particular practice that's unique in any way, but I think culturally it's very much about serving others and doing the right thing. Oh, I'm noticing a common theme across the whole conversation today is sort of these base level principles, whether that's culture within a firm, within a religious tradition, within an investing philosophy that's a little more systematic and, and very principled like Constellation and their discipline. I just think it's obviously I'm extremely biased here, but I just think it's such a powerful way to live life. And it'd be hard to find the right set of principles. But if you find them, it seems like that's, that's a great playbook for, for existing. In, in, our, in our business, we often say it's the combination of culture and process. We are obsessed with process, but if you don't have the culture underneath it, it becomes like process for the wrong reasons. And so uh, combining the two is really, really powerful. So we started with an interesting story of real estate in Barcelona, sort of an ARB, a regulatory ARB, or a market ARB on Airbnb. Uh, it'd be fun then to, to bookend with another interesting story of Owl Mountain. Sure. Describe what Owl Mountain is, and, th- and then I'll also ask you if there's any other unique, weird, never-before-analyzed asset classes that people out there, uh, enterprising people out there should consider. As I mentioned, you know, part of doing a startup is you build this big Ill- illiquid asset, and I... <laughs> When I looked at investments outside of that, I said, hey, I've got this investment into my company, plus all these angel investments that I sort of fell into. And I'm like, they're all valuable, but I can't really do anything with them. And so I became obsessed, again, with the idea of finding cash-flowing businesses. And so when I was literally investing in my retirement, I started thinking about, what if I just owned a bunch of small businesses that gave money? And that le- led me to this discovery that, I guess a little bit similar to Brent, you can find lots and lots of small cash-flowing websites online that are, interestingly, if handled the right way, relatively sticky businesses that you can buy for three times earnings. So I and some friends you know, took a little bit of our retirement money and we bought one site. Uh, and I did this like seven years ago. What was the site? What was that first site? It was uh, a site that gave a directory of marinas. And it was a this sort of, it's like literally a, a, like a miniature private equity story. Uh, the business had been around for a decade, had never raised price. And so the way they made money is they put an ad when you pull up to a marina, you can pick which place to dock into. There's, they put ads there. The ad rates hadn't gone up in 10 years. And the website wasn't mobile friendly. And so those two enhancements and, you know, revenue's up 50%. And, you know, it's a great little way to build a, a cash flow stream. When I left G- GBI and sort of had time, I got some friends together and said, hey, let's scale this up. Let's actually make something of this because it's a pocket of the world where I don't think the next small business that, that you're going to hear about is going to be like the corner deli anymore. I don't think it's going to be the gas station. I think it's going to be some online business. And so what, we, what Owl Mountain does is we look for pockets of the world where you can, uh, verticals where you can sort of compound that knowledge. So as an example, Owl Mountain owns a bunch of pet sites. And the reason why is if you have more traffic, you can get better rates from Chewy or your affiliates. Another area that I'm sort of excited about is just like I think Airbnb is still underestimated, I think the ecosystems around Slack are, you know, Slack has become such a pervasive tool. And there are lots of tools that service Slack. And they're probably really neat little businesses to own because you have a beautiful secular trend behind that. Or Shopify, you know, I think the, the world sort of still underestimates the power of these e-commerce stores. And so if you're some widget on some Shopify store, like that's a really great business. And so we try to find these places where we can acquire these businesses at really, really, really low, low price to cash flow and then centralize all the technology marketing into one group that's, that are just pros at that. And so it's still very early. It's still very young, but it's been incredibly helpful as we think about Terra and some of the stuff that we hope to centralize over time to sort of just see another part of the world that we don't know. Have you ever read the book Gorilla Game? I don't think so. All right, I got to send it to you. So it, it's really interesting because it gets into effectively waiting for certain types of, this is hardware technology, to be installed and become sort of the default on top, the platform on top of which like tons of other services are built, ancillary services are built. 
and it's I'm realizing as you're describing a lot of what you've talked about today that companies like Airbnb, probably certainly Airbnb more so than Uber, but maybe Shopify. I don't know much about Shopify. Are these kind of new platforms, software-based platforms that create all these little weird pockets of opportunity that are new and fresh and interesting to try to value or roll up. So uh, just like Ali, the conversation with Ali uh, a month or so ago, really interesting to hear about these unique pockets. Are there any other areas like that, that I know you're focused on software now, but any other areas like that, that you think people are underestimating or represent this opportunity to be sort of the first person in to even think about it? What I would say is the following. So I think whenever you have a new platform business, something that you talked about a lot over time, everyone always runs to the platform but doesn't look at the ecosystem. And so in the way my mind works is sort of saying, okay, the obvious trade is, you know, I want to go buy Airbnb stock or buy shares of Airbnb. I'm sort of like, what are the derivatives of that that people aren't paying attention to? And so I have like seven ideas in the back of my mind that I would feel to, feel to feed to Ali and team to go operationalize. But, you know, today's mission is to sort of build this, this software powerhouse. So you know my closing question for everyone, which is for the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you. You know, I knew you were going to ask that and I was struggling with it, but during the beginning, it reminded me of a story. So it's really hard for me to say outside of my family, it's hard for me to say anything kinder than what my parents have done and my brother and my sister have done or my uncles or anything like that. But there's one story that just popped in my head that was, I think, one of the things that I'll always remember. I don't know if it's the kindest. And that was my mom passed away in 2008 and it had a massive impact on all of us. We were way too young and we'd gone through a lot of trauma before that. And there was a, a close family, a family friend of ours who we were always close with, but, you know, we'd never been, in, you know, sort of spent lots of time together. I remember it was six months later or a year later, and they invited our family over for the weekend. And they had three, like, amazing little kids who were lots of fun, running around the house, playing games. And it was, like, the first weekend that we as a family had, like, had fun uh, since my mom passed away. And it was, like, totally unexpected. This wasn't a family we'd ever been to their house before. It wasn't someone that we always loved them. They were amazing people. But I will always remember that for the rest of my life as, like, that was the weekend that we all sort of started to recover and be normal again. Fantastic. Well, I knew I would learn even more than I've learned from you over the last couple months. So thank you so much for all the time and insight. Great. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.